The Future by Stefan Molyneux Chapter 13 I open my eyes and see the white room I died in and I know that I am in heaven or hell or some kind of afterlife. I hear a soft beeping and wonder if this is my soul breathing. (laughs) There is no need for a heartbeat after death. From the corner of my vision I see, sitting beside my bed, a woman with long dark hair leaning forward, half asleep perhaps. But what would the purpose of sleep be in the afterlife either? I see her and I feel my heart. Oh, where my heart would be, probably a hole in my soul at the moment. It breaks. I am cracked open like a dropped egg full of tears. I feel the tragic trickle as they stream down the side of my face, and I have a sudden urge to stick out my tongue and lick them to see if there is salt in heaven. I then feel a desperate and deep chill in my soul that there is only one person to greet me, and that person has fallen asleep. And then I know who it is, and an audible sob escapes my throat. Power is sadness. Power over sadness is the whole point. Anyone who has achieved anything starts from a canyon of tragedy. The muscles you build climbing out of sorrow allow you to climb past the clouds and become the sun. These analogies tumble from my brain like a poet crapping from a plane. Even that one surprises me, shocks me with its vivid awfulness. Jane sits by my bed, and she had gone to death over fifty years before me. She sits by my bed as I had sat by her bed how many years ago in life above. You don't know how to love when you grow up with ambition and success and conditions. My father was a fisherman. He fished me out of the lukewarm lake of the average with the bait of his approval and the hook of his approval as well. My mother was busy. She had a lot of lunches to attend, and the greatest joy I ever saw on faces belonged to strangers. My mother did not take much pleasure in me, but she enjoyed the pleasure I gave to others. I was there to serve her needs. I understood that. I didn't resent it. I was happy and relieved that she was so clear in what she wanted. I was desperate to get out of my crib, my carriage, my confinement, my baby burrito of swaddling, so that I could keep her attention by gathering flowers and cooing smiles from strangers. I was nothing 
when I was a baby. An inconvenience, a status symbol, an interruption, I suppose. And babies are boring and manipulative as hell. And I know that from my own children. Though I suppose my heart had softened by the time I became a grandfather. The thought suddenly strikes me as I feel the blood start to creep to my extremities. What age shall I be in this afterlife? I'm not a baby, but I don't feel old and used up like I did before I died. And then another thought strikes me. What the child abuser said in Dostoevsky's novel Crime and Punishment. What if the afterlife is just a little bathhouse with flaking paint full of spiders? But no, the, the air tastes different, but I, I am still breathing. My eyes, God above, they seem sharper than I remembered. And of course I have no glasses on. Together... We, we scan the room I am in, looking for any flaw, any crack, any imperfection, any fragment of mottled mortality, anything that would indicate I am in the crumbling world of tragic reality. There is nothing, nothing that I can see. Everything is perfect, like a computer program or a, a, a simulation of some kind. I desperately tried to remember what I had learned about God. What is the word between heaven and hell where you labor for thousands of years to redeem yourself, to make yourself perfect for the uh, in-between afterlife, not entropy, not... Oh, God, what is the word? A uh, place of confrontation of, of evil and a hand-cramping, grasping for redemption. A place where you had to stare in the mirror and learn to stop screaming in order to graduate... <laughs> It is no use. The, the word will not come. I'm even close to the shape of the letters. I'll have to stop thinking about it in order to receive the grace of possible knowledge. But suicides don't go to heaven. I shudder viscerally and I want to rip the clothes from my body, rip the covers from my clothes, rip the flesh from my bones. Because if it is her... Beside me, then I am in hell. And perhaps this is my short reprieve before the suffering truly begins. But what did I do to deserve hell? I suddenly feel a strange sensation in my chest, or just below my chest, in my, in my diaphragm, where a body seems to awaken and wriggle its fat arms within me. A god baby that has sat judging me my entire life. A baby I buried under money and sex and power and greed. The greed that came from denying where I came from. That is all nonsense. Offensive crap. Anyone who achieves anything has to create and carve themselves from nothing. From rejection and void and scorn and conditions and superiority and inferiority and dominance of the evacuated, the condemned... The words tumble within me like, 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 like paratroopers abandoning a flaming plane. <laughs> but there is nowhere to fall. 
if you are already in hell. I try to move my arms, but they feel frozen to my side. I imagine an armless torso with giant sausages beside it and almost laugh. But I am afraid to laugh because I am terrified that it will come out as a hysterical cackle and bring the curious knife-toothed devils through the doorway. And what if... What if hell is nothing but being alone with your thoughts? What if the body beside me never wakes up? What if I can never move my arms? What if the beeping never stops? What if the light never changes and my vision never decays? What if I am bound in bed for eternity with my thoughts racing to avoid the baby in my belly? I try to think. Oh, what hell would I create if I were the head devil? I would create a power lust with no one to subjugate. Do I have a power lust at the moment? Of course. I yearn for power over my body, my thoughts, and power to to either wake up the girl beside me or or keep her asleep, dead, and purple-necked forever. But I I can move my eyes. That much I can do. I try turning my head and, and, and find that it moves slightly. I feel a rush of relief flooding my bone marrow. But I suddenly can't remember if I could move it before when I was trying to look around the white room and my relief evaporates instantly like water on a red skillet. What if slight movement is all I am allowed? I feel a great sudden rage at the situation, my environment, and my own scattered and random thoughts. I am a man of action, a king ape! I am designed to stride the world like a colossus, not lie in bed looking for cobwebs in the wild hope that I am not in hell. I pour all my energy into moving my limbs. I have a desperate desire to leap from my bed and tear down the blank white walls that surround me that make me feel like I am trapped inside a hollow dice. And even though I suddenly feel certain that if I were to tear down these walls, nothing but burning lakes and grinning red-eyed spider skulls would hang beyond my cell... I would rather have the knowledge. I would rather know where I am than have to guess until I go mad. And if I am in hell within one spin of this infernal planet, I will rule. I almost laugh at the thought of subjugating Satan with charm, bribes, and threats, the standard route to power, so that a legion of assembled devils would vault me up to the fiery throne. And I genuinely feel in the moment that I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And damn, I would be fantastic at tempting mortals, as I was tempted, and as I... The word succumbed floats into my head, and, and I feel the god baby in my belly open its mouth to cry, but I force it into a yawn, and feel a thrill of power that it works. I think I sense movement from the girl to my left. The random patterns of my brain suddenly blow into nothing, like a child's silver bubbles before the ghostly slap of a hurricane. Heart pounding, beeping, increasing, I I try to crane my head to turn my neck to look and see, but it's like trying to move a giant boulder with my fingertips. I feel abject terror, oh, a fear I could never remember feeling before in my adult life, as, as I imagine Jane looming over me, accusing me of murder. I didn't kill... Her. I never killed her. She died because... But the words fall over the edge of my mind like leaves over a waterfall. 
did Jane die? You are here to find out. You are here because you never asked that question. I sigh, or try to. Oh, great. Now there's another voice in here. You are here because you think this is a new voice. Jane. She was always an unusual girl, which is why she had a closed casket. My throat thickens. More tears spill from the sides of my eyes. If I could only look at her directly, I could see whether she had a face. If she has a face, I am in heaven. If not, I am in hell. The beeping changes slightly. At least I think it does. And it suddenly reminds me of my alarm clock when I was, when I was little. I, I can't remember the year, my year, because none of my years felt like mine, I suppose. The alarm would wake me and I would be desperate for sleep, for oblivion, for non-existence, because I hated getting up to slip from the open seas of dreaming to the narrow train tracks of my daily existence, the tracks laid by my parents, their disapproval, my future. I would wake and flow like senseless water through the carved channels of my routine, the channels that led me to the summit of my existence, the peak of my power, and I appreciated all that later. But at the time, I remember feeling a great ancient weariness in my young heart as I arose in the dark to dress and stretch and brush and then to eat a silent power breakfast of two hard-boiled eggs and a smear of peanut butter which always reminded me of skid marks in my underwear and then to be driven in the dark ah, in the slowly glowing light of another day through the sleeping city past the houses of children still playing in their dreams a soldier of future fortune destined for greatness Discipline branded into my skull like a hissing tattoo of endless ownership. And then into the white cube with red lines, so much like my current room, the inside of an empty dice. No, that is wrong. The singular of dice is... Die. And the pounding, leaping thwack of the black ball, first with a yellow dot, then a blue... The snarling encouragement of the coach, the diagramming of strategy, the video review of my opponents, the narrow jumping exercises, the lunges, the feeling that my day should be done when everyone else's was just beginning, the showering, alone, and the feeling that getting to school should be lunchtime when it was just after breakfast. In the winter, my hair frozen, hanging and swinging like a thatched ice roof over my forehead. Oh, and then... The Mandarin lessons after school. First thinking I would be learning about oranges. The tutors, a constant feeling of exhaustion and overextension and the inevitability of disappointing my parents. The slow stoking of rage, of subjugation. And then, leaping forward to, 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 to puberty, my father... Laughing and leaning forward in his overstuffed leather chair, his breath, the hot scent of foreign cigars. It's good that you learned to hate being subjugated. That was the point, kid. A hard thumb stabs a soft palm. Because you hate it so much, you will never let it happen to you ever again. I imagine my mother 
floating through the air, invisible except for her earrings, laughing softly, as if it is all part of the plan, as if my entire adulthood was drawn by my parents, my circumstances, by what I thought was our mutual ambition, like a connect-the-dots picture. I suddenly remember one of those books that I had when I was very little, given to me by... Oh, not by someone in the family, God, or anyone close by, because it had no purpose other than pleasure. I would start, I would hunt for the one and then draw to the two, and I would wait for that moment, that thrill of excitement, of, of recognition, when I would see what the picture was going to be from a bare, half-drawn outline. A bear, a, a starfish, a clown, an, an angular pentagram. Maybe that's what happened in my life. Other people drew the lines, and eventually I, I saw the shape that my life was going to take. I wasn't the numbers. I wasn't the lines. I wasn't the hand. Perhaps I was the paper, the raw material necessary for everything else to have purpose. You are writing from Jane. I shuddered because the voice had a strange accent I could not place, and it certainly wasn't my voice. It was too deep and broad. Hello, my devil, I murmur within my skull prison. There is no response, but I can hear a faint fleshy creak, as if an invisible smile widened within. Blackness, I am into... Return, jolt. My father's foggy voice telling me that life is a circle. You are busy from the age of 13 to the age of 80. In between, you have no time to reflect. His own days were like a cannon being shot against a wall, the cannon being breakfast and the wall being his bed at night. Everything in the middle was just a blur. A leaning, dark, whiskey face, a nighttime confessional under my glow-lit ceiling stars. Wait and see, son. Old age is your second childhood when the dead come back to life. A gesture, a turn, a soft glug of a poor... Uh, when you're old, the scorecard is in. The marks have been tallied. The reviews have been printed. The best way to live has been revealed by the decades. And you go back over your youth and try to figure out who took the right path. One of my first memories. Riding in a train. Pressing my face against the cold, dusty glass breath fogging the window and drawing lollipop people frozen in the foreground against the blurred night of distance. Rain blowing past, streaks of concentrated vision drying. I was tired. Lean my head on the glass but keep one eye open. Occasionally in the flashing dark lights rocket by. I see a scene that I could reassemble in my mind a moment afterwards. A light shining on a broken playground. The swing set had toppled over completely, and I thought of death very suddenly. Why would a family let a playground decay so badly? If their children were young, it would still be in use. If their children were older, it would have been taken down or kept up for grandkids. Death. It had to be the death of a child. Who could bear the pain of tearing down a playground after burying a boy or girl? A doze, perhaps, another scene through the dusty streaks of drying rain. I see a woman with her head lowered on a balcony bathed in a soft sieve of yellow light. I see the rising orange firefly of her cigarette as she raises it to her lips. 
two thoughts overlap. Was she crying? Did she want someone to see her? A tiny train station flashes by and I see a young boy alone, sitting on sacks of something. I didn't know at the time, but now I think it must have been grain. He stares at the train and through a trick of perspective he seems to be staring right at me. And I shudder with a sudden chill because I thought of death again. That the boy was a ghost, killed on the tracks perhaps, sentenced to sit and stare every night. And I had a sudden urge to pull the emergency cord of the train to jump off and run back and demand that he explain himself. You are thinking of your father. Yeah, so what? I remember that long ago midnight train ride. Even the memory is like the scenes outside the window flashing past with no sense of before or after. Because interactions with my father were long stretches of darkness and manic motion. But occasionally, very rarely, a scene would flash by, illuminating what? More tears course from my eyes. I am relieved to feel them trickle down the back of my neck like tiny silver threads trying to hug me. Because it means that, or at least there was a chance that, I am not paralyzed. Sometimes my father would open his mouth. So rare, so precious, and show an inner world of reflection and consideration. And I would feel a sudden hunger rising within me to meet his words and bathe in their illumination, like a parched man in a desert finding wet sand beneath his scrabbling hands. Your father was a torturer. I shudder again, because I have no work to distract me from my voices. What the hell does that mean? He opened his heart from time to... I was afraid of that voice, so I opened myself to the explanation that arises within me. My father showed me his heart like an eclipse shows darkness at noon, common enough to be possible, rare enough to be insanely, utterly maddening. Where was he when Jane... Oh, I realize I'm holding my breath, waiting for that sentence to end. I am afraid of trying to stop that inner voice afraid of its escalation and its potential to undo me completely. But the voice simply stops mid-sentence, or to, to be more accurate given what happened to Jane near the end of the sentence, two words away, to be precise. Jane was the most popular girl in school. Beautiful, athletic, academic, and a nice person. God, how long has it been since I viewed that as a positive attribute rather than... Jane was everywhere, doing everything, helping everyone. Although insanely popular, she did not develop that resting bitch frozen face mask, but was friendly to just about everyone. She had no sense of self-protection. She had no sense that 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 you were in the world, I gasped. Where am I? Who are you? The voice says nothing. But I sense a great cavernous interstellar disapproval and, and realize that I am trying to put the voice at a distance, outside myself, beyond, beyond. The thought fails me. The words will not come. 
Ah, I am closer to remembering the state between heaven and hell. Not entropy, uh, but something like it. The syllables jumble against each other in an unformed background, like faceless crowds of pink eggs in the distant bleachers of an impressionist painting. Ah, it's getting closer. Closer. A thousand years of... Ah, purgatory! Purgatory! That was the word. The gateway to riches for priests who could reduce your time there for a fee. Purgatory. Oh, a place of confrontation with sin and the expulsion of the catastrophe of the physical. The chance to burrow up from the flesh and head to the encircling stars in a puff of pure transcendent being. <sighs> is this purgatory? This is the place of judgment for your sins. Huh. A half-snarling laugh rises in my taut throat. To hell with that! Sins? I guided my country. I got things done. I liberated an entire nation. I provided... I provided for my family and made sure the children of the land had enough to eat. I raised reasonably successful children. I stayed married to my wife. My breath stops. What the hell am I doing? Why was I thinking of Jane gone these many decades, forever and a day, before thinking of my wife, who bore my children and supported my elevation to the peaks of power, and who stayed with me like a trainer taunting me on a treadmill to run faster but never reach him? My mind goes blank for a time. How much time? I have no idea. Was that a movement from the dark-haired woman to my left? I suddenly think that Jane has been waiting for me in this maddening chamber, this inner die, for over 60 years, waiting for me to come and explain myself as if I could. The next thought was darker, as if I would. Does she deserve an explanation? Well, you run from your past. That's the nature of life. You run from it and then it encircles you and swallows you whole. Everything we avoid, we recreate. You avoided death. I did not recreate death. The very thought made me feel like I was falling forever. That I had been falling forever. And I suddenly realized that if my little room were hurtling through space, no, I would know it because I would be weightless. My father always told me that I could achieve whatever I wanted. I just had to have a plan and commitment. For most people, plans are just dreams. If you take three steps towards an actual objective, you're doing better than 99% of the useless eaters in this world. <sighs> I remember him saying this more than once. And for the life of me now, I cannot decide if that was a flash of illumination outside the train window or the yawning blackness between the lit vignettes. Everyone loved the drama of Jane's ending. Everyone claimed to have been her best friend and wore black and talked in murmurs and created mixtapes of her favorite songs and played them in the quad and wept and talked in hushed tones about how life is short and fleeting and to make the best of it, make the most of it in honor of her. Jane was angry at her parents. I understood that, though I never would have said it aloud. 
if you hang yourself in the closet of your parents' bedroom. I can't conceive of that level of anger. Or, yes, I can, I suppose, because I'm afraid of the voice, so I will speak for it. I wait. Nothing. I was at the party, but I didn't know what happened. I heard the rumors that she drank or her drink was spiked. (sighs) The night that effectively ended her was shrouded in lies and misdirection and and drunkenness and drugs and (laughs) legally compliant silence, ordered by the Roman phalanx of lawyers that descended on the teenagers at that party, shielding them from a cowardly and ineffective police force. All parents shield their children. Ours just outsourced it like holding hands. I was in the process of becoming Jane's best friend. My father on women. Imagine a woman had nothing romantic to offer you. How interesting would she be? He would shrug. I've met very few living women who could pass that test. More than a few dead ones, but they pass the test mostly because they can't talk back. My father had the powerful man's habit of loudly laughing at his own jokes as a signal for other people to join in to show their deference and appreciation. (laughs) My father was offensive because he had power. As he would tell me, power is mostly the power to offend. That's how you measure it, at least. During the time of... Hysterical attacks on whatever caused offense. My father sailed over the panicking melee as if it didn't exist, like like a presidential plane flying over the storm cloud, serene in the peak of power. Power is not having to care about what other people think, he would say to me, which wasn't true, but just sounded good, like a fortune cookie you could read while walking off a cliff. You only get power by caring about what other people think, understanding what makes them tick, and then using it to control them. This was a refreshing honesty for me. Power is precarious because you can never say the truth about what makes it work, using fear to disassemble personalities so that you can invade and take them over. Is this the purpose of purgatory, to strip away the tinsel and reveal the tree? Or, more appropriately, the roots? Ah, it is amazing to me that I can remember Jane's last name long before I could remember the word purgatory. Middlebrook. I stifle an inner giggle. With that name, she should have been found floating in a stream like Ophelia. (laughs) Oh, wobbly things are cute when they're young. But if they stay wobbly as they age, they just start to look ridiculous and infertile. (laughs) What an odd word. Cutesy speak is fine in toddlers, but grating in teenagers. Jane's father was a deep thinker who understood nothing about evil. He thought that evil was a kind of error, that it could be fixed by reason and evidence. (laughs) He thought that evildoers wanted to achieve an end, but were just mistaken about the right path. 
and thought that his own deep thoughts were like a murmuring GPS that would set people back in the right direction. Recalculating. <laughs> My father taught me well. Taught me better. Infinitely better, which is why I became president and Jane rotted in the closet. I shudder. Purgatory will not be kind to such vanity. I'm really just playing with the idea. I, I, I don't believe in the afterlife. And I won't now, even if I am here. My father told me bluntly, when he deemed me old enough to understand, he was wrong. Evil is just a word that losers invented to console themselves when they blew it. The zebra thinks the lion is evil. The lion thinks the hunter is evil because they lose. And when they lose, they need a consolation prize for their vanity. And that consolation prize is that they are good and the winner is evil. Being called evil is just a sign, a mark of honor, really, that you are getting what you want in this life and not settling for stupid word game consolation prizes. <laughs> Your mother is a beautiful woman, and she was engaged when we met, which I loved, because it was just one versus one. If she was single, it would have been one versus 20 or a hundred. And it's easy to get a woman to choose you. All you have to do is drop hints that she can do better than her current boyfriend, or fiancé in this case, and then talk about all of your grand ambitions. Hypergamy, my boy. That's the hidden switch of the V-bomb. If she's looking up, she's climbing up. Just be the summit of her destination and she will come to you. Cigar pull, whiskey sip, hand wave. So she dumped her fiancé and married me. Yeah, he was bitter. He called me unscrupulous and vile and predatory. And I'm sure evil too. <laughs> and he confronted me once in a parking lot and raged and shook his fist. <laughs> I just laughed at him and almost said, you're just making noise, but I'm going home to banger. But then I remembered that everything could be recorded, so I just smiled and drove away. When you get what you want, you don't need to retaliate. And all these moral terms were just invented to try and shame people who get what they want. It's the voodoo language revenge of the losers. But the winners write the history. All we have to do is ignore the losers who try to rewrite the fight as good versus evil, rather than just winner versus loser. Life is a sport, my boy. Don't get sucked into talk about morality. That's just a way of castrating yourself and letting people with better words conquer you without even a fight. This was not just a still scene shooting by in the night outside the window. It seemed that these kinds of talk were the destination, the goal of the journey they were repeated so often. And I was doing this with Jane, who had a fiancé, and she genuinely seemed to think that this meant she could be friendly with boys because they would respect that bond. Oh, Lord, she probably got that from her Socrates of a father. Jane and uh, Matt were one of those couples that had lasted from junior high school onwards, the married couple of her high school. Matt was serious and scholarly and reasonably good-natured, so obviously a copy of Jane's dad that nobody even bothered to point it out. She claimed he had a private sense of good humor, but was relatively shy in public, which was just a cry for help, really. Pretending that he had all these secret virtues that made him worthwhile, which no one in public could ever see, 
was just her way of screaming, I don't think he's good enough for me. But Matt had a vulnerability, a need for her, which arose from the fact that she was a bit of a late bloomer. And he got his hooks into her when she was lower status, not as pretty, not as curvy. And her brain had not developed much either. I clearly remember a biology tutor telling me once, that which is more complex takes longer to develop. He was talking about human babies versus ducklings, something like that. But the sentence always stuck in my brain and helped me a lot in my political career. Jane's brain, nothing spectacular when she was younger, rocketed to prominence in her mid-teens. I'm sure that Matt bored her to death with his long speeches about loyalty and investment. At least she knew he wasn't just into her for her looks because he chose her when she was still a bit of an ugly duckling. (sighs) Anyone who insists he has value to you is just a leech and a drain, trying to make up in words for what he lacks in substance, in action. And Matt, Matt, oh man, I can see him now tall and just on the skinny side of slender, his pleading brown eyes insisting that the world conform to his theories for the sake of virtue. Matt wanted to change the world for the better, which always kills a woman's libidos, or a girl's in Jane's case. (laughs) I mean, the odds of actually changing the world through words are so incredibly tiny that, ah, God, who would bother Maybe, just maybe, a hundred or a thousand years after your death, you can have some effect. But as the old saying goes, a prophet is respected everywhere but in his own country. And his own house, which means by his wife. Women desire men because men provide resources. A man is a portal to get resources so that a mother can feed and shelter her kids. Universal abstractions and calls to virtue and the scolding of evildoers puts no meat or drink on the table. Either the prophet is successful, in which case he is persecuted, or he fails. In both cases, his children go hungry. Either way, the woman loses out. Abstract improvements are always material disasters. Men tend to be smarter than women, my father would say, so the greatest purpose of women is the production of more male brains. (laughs) It was a mark of his power over me that he could tell me these things, knowing that I would never use his words against him and destroy his world. So, I would sit with Jane and talk about hopes and dreams. She was torn between a career and raising a family, because the rulers of this world are not stupid. They know that IQ is mostly genetic and want to make sure that smart women don't breed, so we dangle careers in front of them to keep them barren. Careers make money, children cost money. Careers pay off now, children pay off later. Careers make you independent, children make you dependent. Careers let you keep your figure and dress exquisitely, children turn you to kitchen pudge and sweatpants. What do I want for my life? I would say to Jane with a shrug. Man, I don't really like these kinds of conversations, no offense, because the only thing I want for my life is the living of it. I'm going to make money, I'm going to be successful, and I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it all. What that looks like in detail, I have no idea, and I don't really care. I'm smart, reasonably attractive, charismatic, good with words. I have a successful family, I have a built-in mentor in my father, not to mention his brothers. The world is going to be unjustly kind to me, and I'm going to love every minute of it. 
And I would see these words disappear into her, like burrowing gophers building an invisible underground city. And I would see her hypergamy rise within her, growing like a tree towards the light of my absolute and unencumbered ambition. The uncomplicated provision of resources is catnip to women, and I was laying a trail of simple coins from her heart to my bed. (laughs) I knew that my words would cause friction between her and Matt, who quite regularly tangled himself up in sketchy and wildly ambitious projects for improving the world with no material benefit to himself and great risk to his future family. He would... (laughs) without a hint of sarcasm or irony, talk about speaking truth to power, which I think is a fine piece of nonsense to say, as long as you don't actually speak any truth to any actual power. Scolding Christians is one thing. It it doesn't take a lot of moral courage to criticize a group commanded to love their enemies. But if he ever took on any real power in this world, his days would be dark, short, and extremely unpleasant. Socrates talked about being a gadfly. (laughs) And gadflies get swatted, as he was. Might as well rub yourself up with marinade and go swimming with sharks, thinking that you are bringing peace to the ocean. I was consciously setting up a polar opposite to Jane's boyfriend. She didn't even seem to be aware of it. I held tangible wealth before her female eyes, while Matt held out the faint possibility of future fame in the next century. (sighs) Men can reproduce through ideas. Women need babies. Anyone who doesn't understand that equation doesn't understand women at all, and will fail and be left alone muttering mean moral words about the winners. It was a war of words, a war of wills, a silent combat over the greatest treasure, And, shockingly to me, Matt won. I never knew what he said to win, but I'm sure it had something to do with Nietzsche and the will to power and amoral resource acquisition and her future children being abandoned by a materialistic father. As if fathers are there to play paddy cake and dress up dolls. And her future regrets at pursuing money over meaning. I'm sure that he drew with air quotes a very vivid moat around the natural greed of her future children and was able to successfully bar me from entry. (sighs) I was utterly unused to losing. But I knew enough about winning to know that such a loss could never go unpunished. I also knew enough to know that I should not insult myself by pretending that Jane was too inconsequential to mourn. Nietzsche did say, and and I agree, never leave your actions in the lurch. I valued Jane. I wanted Jane. I treasured Jane, which is close enough to love to count. And I wasn't going to pretend that she was suddenly worthless because she rejected me. I knew that lie would diminish my future desire, since my desire would know that it could be flushed away on a whim, on a dumb rejection. Jane was not a confrontational person, so she never told me why she drifted away. But she started suggesting that we hang out more with friends, and less one-on-one. And then she went away for a summer and barely contacted me, 
God, I hate that word, busy. It's such a lie, at least for women. (sighs) Of course, my friends and boon companions circled her, all vying to outdo me by capturing what I had lost. (sighs) I'm guessing Mad was ambivalent about this new interest in his girlfriend from powerful sons. He wanted to change the world for the better, and I imagined that he fantasized that access to powerful people would help him, like we are just moldable pieces of useless clay to be shaped by the airy words of some language-based loser. Oh, you're going to call us immoral? You're going to have to say that we have responsibilities? You're going to try and use us to achieve your goals? Well, sure, you can have all our power and money because we definitely achieved our summits of influence and leadership by listening to teenage losers full of insults pretending to be plans. (laughs) Oh, it's all so laughable. Such a lesson that has to be learned every single generation, over and over. You cannot shape the powerful with the soft, useless words of moralizing. We only became powerful by rejecting moralizing and accepting the mammal facts of getting stuff done, of winning women and making babies. You can have your words, we'll just take the world. And I knew these sharks were circling Jane. And I also knew that they would be my vengeance. <laughs>